preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. By now, I'm sure that uh, you've heard that there was a 60 Minutes report that aired last Sunday where a retired Navy pilot recounted for a national television audience his history with UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, better known as UFOs. Uh, A Washington Post article reads, when the Navy pilot was first spotted, the Uh, the strange object hovering in the restricted airspace off the Atlantic coast, he was stunned. No exhaust plume, no visible engine, all the makings of something secret, something mysterious, or something dangerous. But years later, Ryan Graves sounded almost bored as he recounted the story, perhaps because for him and some of his former Navy colleagues, such sightings became a regular occurrence. Every day, Graves said in an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes that aired Sunday, every day for at least a couple of years. By itself, the report uh, might have been easy to dismiss, but last month the Pentagon confirmed the authenticity of photos, videos taken by Navy personnel in 2019 that appeared to show triangle-shaped objects blinking and moving through the clouds. And in August of 2020, the Department of Defense established an Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force to improve its understanding of, gain insight into the nature and origins of UAPs. And supposedly in the next six weeks, there's supposed to be a a public uh, report that's uh, making public all the gatherings of the the government, uh, all that the government knows about these UAPs. And I've been asked what my response was about that. First response is we simply don't have enough information. We don't know enough about it. Uh, It also wouldn't surprise me if there are other governments uh, with technology that we don't know about. And I've also thought what a way the enemy could use something like this to delude people. In uh, Ephesians chapter 6, it lets us know that there are rulers, powers, forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness, and heavenly places, and people are far more likely to pay attention to a flying saucer than pay attention to the Savior, who literally came to us from out of this world. In uh, John 8 verse 23, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And if you want a a word from another world, we already have that. Uh, But regarding the question about alien life on this planet, the Bible has a word about that. And uh, for that, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Today we're turning our attention back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And what really begins the heart of Peter's letter Uh, There's a series of exhortations that starts in chapter 2 and verse 11. It's going to take us all the way to chapter 3 and verse 12. uh, And it's a section of scripture that addresses the responsibilities uh, that we have for for various relationships that we find ourselves in. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 13 to 17 speaks about our responsibility to human institutions. 
Chapter 2, 18 to 25, the responsibility to masters. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the responsibility of wives. And chapter 3 and verse 7, the responsibility of husbands. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9, it says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might be a blessing. All of you being this way, you know, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted. But before we get to, to all of that, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, the believer is instructed about our responsibility to the world, the world around us. What is our relationship to the world around us? Because it doesn't matter where we go in this unbelieving world, we are not at home in it. We're reminded that believers are not part of this fallen world system. And actually, the, the Bible refers to us as aliens, as strangers, as outsiders. And I'm wondering if there's any aliens among us. I certainly hope so. First, First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 11 and 12 with me. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word once again, and we pray that you'd open up your word to us. Help us to live according to your word. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to hear from you. And Father, we know that your word gives us instructions for our daily lives. It tells us who we are, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. And Father, I pray that you would help us not to walk away from this word, Lord, and remain unchanged, but that we would be transformed as a result of it. And uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said before, that the true believer is an alien in this world, an alien in the world that he was born in. We may look the same, we may dress the same, we may talk the same, eat the same foods, go to some of the same places, but the believer in Jesus Christ has a life that's from another world and we don't exactly fit in anymore. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new what? He's a new creature. He's a new creation. We're, we're not the same. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, For you have died, the old self has died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a new life. And in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm dead. I'm gone. But, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have inside me the life of Jesus Christ. Another life. The believer has been given a supernatural life. In MacArthur's systematic theology, he points out that the Spirit opens the blind eyes of the mind so that the regenerate man appraises all the things he once could not understand. The Spirit removes the sinner's heart of stone, and the affections are renewed after the likeness of Christ, so that the new man hates sin and loves righteousness. With renewed affections, the sinner's will is finally freed from the bondage of sin and the liberty of righteousness, for the Spirit of God is at work in him both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Sinclair Ferguson helpfully summarizes this. He says, regeneration 
is all pervasive, is just as pervasive as our depravity. While the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be, there is no part of life which remains uninfluenced by this renewing and cleansing work of the Spirit of God. The regenerate individual is truly born again. It's a new life. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. We, we have a life that did not originate in this world, which means that the fleshly desires which you used to be at home with, with, with which are now to be enemies of your soul. You used to be at home there, but now it's not home anymore. I'm, I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. The things that we were once at peace with, we're now at war with because we're different. And the world around you that at one time might have been comfortable with you, now they consider you a threat. In John chapter 15 and verse 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, you're not of this world. But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. You know, one of the reasons that this discussion about UAPs or UFOs is a topic of discussion is because they're considered a potential threat. You know, what if there's something that we, we don't know, something outside of this life? It's a threat, classified as a, as a threat. You know, a foreign, uh, one of the, uh, in the Department of Defense, the, the former head of the classified Department of uh, Defense program said this, that these aircraft are displaying characteristics that are not currently within the U.S. inventory nor any foreign inventory that we are aware of. It's a threat. And as a believer, you are displaying characteristics that are not within the human inventory. You don't conform to this world anymore. We're beginning to exhibit new thoughts, new affections, new desires, new actions. And because of that, the world that you live in now considers you a threat. You're not like us anymore. We're constantly waging war against our own temptations. We're warring against the temptations on the inside, and we're also warring against the accusations on the outside because we're not the same anymore. There's an internal battle against the soul. And that's what we find over in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Because of the fleshly lust and impulses, there's this, this battle that's waging on the inside. But there's also an external battle on the outside to maintain our witness among those who are seeking to discredit the Christian message by slander and accusation. And that's what we find in verse 12, where he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. But before the Apostle Paul addresses these responsibilities, like I mentioned before. He's in a new section. He's going to start addressing our uh, various roles and responsibilities in different areas of life, government, employment, marriage. He says, before I get to all that, let me first address the battle that's going on inside your own heart. There, there's a battle that wages right there. And Peter does this not in a demeaning kind of way or condemning sort of way, but he encourages the believers with this earnest affection he addresses them as beloved, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. That, that word uh, beloved, now some of your translations might say dear friends. It's the, uh, the Greek word agapetoi. It's uh, an adjectival form of the word agape. You're familiar with that word for, for love, the Greek word for love. 
It's a reminder of God's love for them, but it's also a reminder of, in this context, of Peter's love for them as a fellow elder. He's urging them with the tender affection of a shepherd. And even the way Peter commands them is by coming alongside of them to encourage them. You know, that, that word for, for urge is the, the Greek word parakaleo. It's literally to call alongside of. I'm, I'm coming alongside of you to call you, to urge you towards something. And what does this love and tender affection call on us to do? The main idea that completes the thought here is I'm coming alongside of you to call you to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's, that's what love calls you to do, to abstain from fleshly lusts. You know, and some of our young people and singles need to tuck that one away in the, the back of your minds. That, that true love wants you to abstain from fleshly lusts. Not engage in fleshly lust, indulge in fleshly lust, but to abstain from fleshly lust. And how many times has that word love been ripped out of its context, uh, thrown into context where it didn't belong at all, uh, because it was all about engaging and indulging your fleshly desires. True love knows how to say no. And if you're being encouraged to give into some fleshly lust for the, the sake of love, that is not love. That is not love. It's lust. And you're being lied to and don't fool yourself. Peter's love for these believers and God's love for them calls them to experience holiness. Holiness. And what a gift holiness is to any relationship, isn't it? Holiness. It's a call to abstain, to hold back, to keep off from, to stay away from. And what we've been called to abstain from is fleshly desires or the desires of the flesh. And it's important to understand what we mean by fleshly desires, because uh, sometimes when we use that word flesh, we're just talking about our humanity, you know, that we're human, you know, but there's nothing sinful about being human. You know, Jesus was truly human, right? But there was nothing sinful about who Jesus was. For example, uh, we find in uh, John 1.14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But Jesus was completely without sin. First Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In 1 John 3.5, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So uh, being in the flesh does not always include the idea of being in sin. But often when the word flesh is used in Scripture, it includes this idea of being opposed to the will and to the work of the Spirit. For example, over in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, uh, Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, the unredeemed part of who I am. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, he says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, and again, opposing God, hostile towards God, cannot please God. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You know, to put it simply, the flesh is that unredeemed aspect of our humanity that opposes the will and the work of God. That's, that's the part of us that will be one day glorified, you know, transform the, the, the body of this flesh. But what does it look like to give in to fleshly desires. How do you know that you're giving into the flesh? Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 20 actually gives a list of various expressions of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, it says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's, that's the expression of the sinful flesh. And he goes on to say that I, I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you before, that those who practice such things, if this is your habitual lifestyle, if this is your address, this is where you live, you know, if, if we want to find out where you are, and it's just like, well, I, I know where he's at. He's over here because that's what he always does. That's his lifestyle. He says, if you practice such things, don't fool yourself. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the scriptures say. Don't be deceived. It's evident. The deeds of the flesh are evident. These are practices which are in opposition to God, hostile toward God. And if these are the sins that you're living in, it's evidence that you do not belong to God. Why? Because the spirit fights against these things. If, if I have received of the spirit of God, there's a battle that's going on. I don't just live in that. There's a battle that wages against those things. And if there's no fight, there's no faith. If there's no fight, there's no faith. You can't live here in this list and be transformed at the same time. If there's no fight, there's no faith. You can expect there to be a fight if you're a believer because the spirit sets his desires against the flesh. But on the other end, you can also expect there to be a fight from the flesh against the will and the work of the Spirit of God. I remember uh, talking to one individual. He said, you know, before I gave my life to, to Jesus Christ, before I professed faith, like everything just seemed so easy. But now all of a sudden, it's like life just became so much more difficult. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the family, right? That's, that's how it is. It becomes more difficult to do the right thing because now there's a battle going on. You know, any, any, any dead fish can flow downstream, right? You know, it's the live ones that have to battle against the current. Like we are those who've been given the life of the spirit and now we're battling against these sinful impulses and desires that we didn't battle before. Now, now there's a battle that wages. Galatians 5, 22 to 25 speaks about the fruit of the spirit. It says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, but there's a lot of fight to maintain those things, right? You know, you don't just wake up in the morning. It's like, I'm so happy, joyful, loving, kind, good, faithful. It's just like there's, there's a battle that wages there, right? I, I have to fight for these things. And again, not only if there's no fight, there's no faith, uh, but if there's no fruit, there's no faith. Because this is the evidence, the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is a part of your life, if the Spirit is entered into your life, you're going to start to see these things manifesting in your life as well. And verse 24 follows that up by saying, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We, we don't just kind of lay down and, and play dead. It's like we fight against these desires, these impulses. And we do what Peter calls us to do, that we hold back, we keep away from, we stay from these fleshly impulses. There's a fight that happens now. But Peter doesn't just give us this instruction. He also gives us some rationale behind it. Back in 1 Peter 2 again. Why, why, why do I abstain from these fleshly desires, Peter? Why, why do I do that? Because your sinful desires are not characteristic of you anymore. Your sinful desires are not characteristic of you anymore. How do I get that? Listen to what he says. Beloved, I urge you as what? Aliens and strangers. 
This is not characteristic of you anymore. This old life is not characteristic of who you are. There should be a certain kind of strangeness to who you are now. The kind of lifestyle that you lived before you came to know the Lord shouldn't be familiar to you anymore because now you're a different person. These things are now strange to me. I'm a foreigner. I'm an alien to these things. It should be foreign to you. It's not your home anymore. A couple uh, weeks ago, we had Kerry Hardy, who was here with us, a pastor from Twin City, and he gave this illustration during a Q&A, and I, I just thought it was brilliant. Um, he says, don't, don't look for the, the book, chapter, and verse on this. It's just an illustration, okay? But he says, it's like when you're born into the world, before you're regenerated, before you come to Jesus Christ, he says, it's like you're born with gills, you know, and you just kind of swim around in the, the sea of the world. You know, that's just kind of part of who you are, like you're happy in it. It's your nature. You just kind of swim around in the ocean of the world and, and you're totally fine. That's, that's the, the water that just kind of flows through your gills. And he says, it's like when you're transformed, when you're regenerated, it's like the Lord takes away the gills and gives you lungs. And now you can still jump into the ocean of the world, but you have to hold your breath now. You know, you still remember like what it was like to be wet, but it's just like, I, I got to come up to breathe sometime because like the Lord hasn't equipped me to stay down here. I can't live here anymore. Something is different about who I am. I've been transformed. I've been made a new creature. I'm not that old person that I was. I don't just swim in that ocean anymore and hold my breath for as long as I want to. It's like, somehow it's like the, the pressure on the lungs like pushes you back up. I gotta get a breath. I've gotta breathe in the air of righteousness. That's what it's like for the believer. If you've been a believer for a period of time, you may have, may have had this experience, you know, when you think back over your life, like to what you used to be like, it's almost like you look back and like, who, who was that? <laughs> Like, like, it's almost like you don't recognize the person that you used to be. It's like, who, who was that? Like, that was somebody else. You know, because that's not me. I, I can't imagine myself doing what I used to do. Because God has made you to be somebody different. It's not characteristic of you anymore. And that's what Peter's getting at in this exhortation. He's reminding these believers that that's not you. You're aliens, you're strangers. And both are terms to say that you don't fit in any longer. That word for alien... Uh, parotkas is a word that was used for uh, someone who dwelled in a land that was not their place of origin. They lived alongside of those who were citizens of that country, but they themselves were not citizens anymore. They were residents, but they weren't citizens. And they had limited rights and protections in that new place that they lived in. They lived alongside of those who were the citizens, but they weren't citizens. And that stranger, uh, it's uh, even... A further removed from that, a stranger is just a traveler. He's just a sojourner. I'm just, I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through. And what Peter is saying is that the customs of the land that you are dwelling in don't belong to you anymore. Like this is not natural to who I am anymore. It doesn't characterize you because you are an alien. You're a foreigner. Do you remember when Peter was in the courtyard outside of uh, the house where Jesus was being falsely accused, tried by the chief priest and there's that servant girl who recognized him. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. The servant girl came up and says, you, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. I, I recognize you. You, you were one of them. You were with them. And he's denying it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Gone away and another servant girl saw that he was there and says, this man was also with Jesus the Nazarene. And he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. 
And then a little later, the bystanders came up and they're kind of like checking Peter out. They say, surely you too are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away. You can't hide it. I I heard that, that twang in there. That's a little Galilean. I know who you are. And then he had to begin to curse and swear, right? He's got to get over himself. I don't know the man. Let me show you like my distance from him because I got to kind of practice the language that you use because I don't want to be associated with him. But it's like uh, Peter tried to hide it, but he, he couldn't hide it for long. It's like, no, I've, I have been with him, right? I feel like that's a lot of times how we are when we try to kind of like blend in with the world. It's like, aren't, aren't you, uh, I think I heard you say something that sounded, no, 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 that's, that's not me. Don't. Don't associate me with that. You want to kind of blend in, fit in, kind of change, change the language a little bit, you know, to make sure that you don't stick out. But again, if you're a true believer, eventually it's going to come to the surface. I can't hide it for that long. Eventually it's got to come out. And my question for you is, is the world unnatural for you? Is the, is the world foreign to you? Or does the world feel like right at home? This is, hey, this is where I live. This is where I hang out. Like, this is where I'm comfortable at. I'm comfortable in the world. I'm comfortable with the, the world's thinking and the, the world's music and the, the world's ideologies. I'm comfortable there. Like that's, I think like them. Like these are my people. Or do you get around the world and it's just like, oh, I long to be with the people of God. <laughs> like like I, I, wanna, I wanna hear truth. Like I, I'm tired of hearing all this other stuff. It's like wash me with the word of God. Like I, I wanna hear what's right. Where do you feel comfortable? Is it foreign to you or do you, do you cuss with the best of them? Just like you used to. Give in to your sinful urges. Just like you used to. And feel comfortable. Just like you used to. If you're a believer, you can't. You can't. Not for long. Not for long. Number one, it's not characteristic of you anymore. And number two, the sinful desires are in conflict with you now. Like, like there's, a, there's a battle. Those, those sinful desires aren't your friends anymore. You're actually in conflict with those sinful desires. Look again at verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. As a believer, your sinful fleshly desires actually stand in opposition to who you've been created to be. Your sinful desires are at war with you. Remember again in Galatians chapter 5, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit. There's, there's a battle that wages. The fleshly desires are at war with you. Literally serves as a soldier. It does battle. It wages war. It's a military term that depicts the devastating internal effect of Gentile-like desires upon the believer. It's actually killing you. It, it kills you now to give in to your sinful desires. It's killing you. Listen, your, your sins are not just going to roll over and die, okay? Those fleshly impulses, they're not just going to roll over and die. They won't come quietly. They won't wave the white flag and surrender. There's going to be a decisive action on your part because it's going to be a fight. And they're going to fight against you. They're not going to give up. They're going to continually come after you to try to kill you, to put you down. And just like the gladiator who enters the arena, it was either kill or be killed. There's a battle that happens there. John Owen in his book, Mortification of Sin, if you don't have it, run, don't walk to go and get this book. Mortification of Sin by John Owen. He says this, do you mortify Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is a battle that wages 
with the sinful desires. Later on in his work, he says, even when we think that a lust is dead because it's quiet, we must labor to give it new wounds and fresh blows every day. We, we battle our sins and our sins battle us. There is a battle that's waging now. There's a conflict that's happening. So you can't just sit and remain idle. There's, there's a conflict. You are in conflict now with your sinful flesh. And the idea is that we don't sit here and protect and coddle our evil desires, that we expose them and treat them as the enemy that they really are. There's this uh, illustration in the, the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, where he tells this story about a man who's afflicted by lust. And uh, lust is pictured as like this little lizard that sits on his shoulder, little red lizard. And when the man is despairing about his sin and he's talking about this lizard, oh, I wish that, you know, this would, I'd be done with this, that I could get, get over this. And there's a person who comes and says, hey, well, I can kill the lizard for you, but he's, he's attached to the lizard. <laughs> you know, doesn't want anybody to, to touch it. He fears the death of his, his, his pet lizard will be the end of him. So he kind of like protects, protects the, the lust, you know, protects what's actually killing him. John Owen says, we will not be making progress in holiness without walking over the bellies of our lusts. It's, it's, a, it's a battle and it's, it's mortal combat. He that's appointed to kill an enemy has only done half of his work if he quits before the enemy is dead, Owen says. It's, it's a battle and you deal violently with your sin. You expose it for what it is. We need to deal radically with our sin. There's no, no ceasefire when it comes to sin. And if you need help, you get help, right? Scripture actually encourages uh, confession. One author uh, puts it this way. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. And the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. If, if you really want to deal with your sin, get it out into the light. <laughs> Come to somebody. Talk to somebody. Can you pray with me? Help me. I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to, to, to practice this anymore. I need help. Come to the light. There's, 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 there's hope in the confession of sin. The person who confesses and forsakes his sin, that's the person who finds blessing. Amen? There's this internal battle against the soul that First Peter talks about. And this is what we're to abstain from, abstain from these fleshly lusts. But number two, there's also this external battle to maintain our witness with those who are seeking to discredit the Christian message. Slander, accusation. It's one of the ways that the world attempts to silence the Christian witness. It's by slander. Accusing the believers is what the religious leaders attempted to do in the life of Christ. Remember that? They accused Jesus of being born of fornication because he was born of a virgin. John 8, 41. They speak to Jesus and says, we're not, we're not born of fornication. And the implication like you, we're not born of fornication. We know who our, our father is. They accused Jesus of planning to destroy the temple. Matthew 26, 61, they said, this man stated I'm able to destroy the temple of God, which is actually not what he said. But they, they twisted his words. This man said he's going to destroy the temple. That's why we're bringing him here, because he's, uh, he's going to destroy the temple. They accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath when his disciples ate on the Sabbath, when he healed the man on the Sabbath, which is, which is a strange accusation to make, right? 
you know, we're going to accuse him because he, uh, he made somebody better on the Sabbath day the, by the power of God. You know, we're going to accuse him of a miracle. You know, can't come up with anything better than to accuse Jesus of working a miracle. They accused Jesus of having a demon. John 8, 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They accused Jesus of being Lord of the demons. Mark 3, 22, they said he's possessed by Beelzebul and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus says it's enough. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? If that's the kind of treatment that I've received, uh, if you're going to follow me, do you think you're going to get anything better? <laughs> if that's the kind of treatment that I received, the Lord and Master, you know, do you think you're going to be treated any, any better? Do you think you're going to escape the slander and the accusation? It comes with the, the territory of being a Christian. It's part, part of our DNA. They slander you as evildoers. And the Christians of the first century were slandered as evildoers. Christians were accused of being atheists because they didn't worship the Roman deities. Christians were accused of cannibalism because they spoke about eating the, the body and drinking the blood of the Lord. Christians were accused of incest because they spoke of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even their spouses. You know, this is my sister, sister in the Lord. So they accused them of incest. They were accused of being haters of humanity because they didn't participate in the religious festivals and the cultural activities. And during the reign of Nero, there was a targeted persecution against Christians in Rome, either just before or just after 1 Peter was written. Nero was a cruel emperor, only 17 when he, when he first assumed the throne. He used to listen to the advisors, including his mother, until he had both his advisors and his mother put to death. Later, he disposed of both of them, and there was a fire that broke out in 64 AD, and as the fire raged, one historian writes this, he says, the opinion of all cast the widespread hatred and disgust of causing the fire upon the emperor himself, and he was believed in this way to have sought for the glory of building a new city, and in fact, Nero could not by any means, he tried escape from the charge that the fire had been caused by his orders. He therefore turned the accusation against the Christians. And the most cruel tortures were accordingly afflicted upon the innocent. Even new kinds of deaths were invented, so that being covered in the skins of wild beasts, they, were, they perished being devoured by dogs. While many were crucified or slain by the fire, not a few were set apart for this purpose, that when the day came to a close, they should be consumed to serve for light during the night. Nero himself offered his gardens for the spectacle. Basically, he'd light Christians on fire and watch them burn to light his gardens. And in this way, cruelty began to be manifested against the Christians. And afterwards, their religion was prohibited by laws, which were enacted by edicts openly set forth. It was proclaimed unlawful to be a Christian. And during this same persecution, both uh, Paul and Peter were condemned to death. Paul was beheaded and uh, Peter was crucified, as history tells us, upside down. And the reason Christians became an easy scapegoat is because they were already held in suspicion and they were already being slandered. The slander led to the outward persecution. You know, the slander came first and the persecution came after. And Peter speaks to his readers and he says that you're being slandered. You're being falsely accused. That's what happens. 
People try to silence the witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ by accusing his representatives. So how do you silence the slanderer? And this is what Peter addresses here. How do you, how do you, how do you silence the slanderers? Look again at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent. How do you shut down the slanderers? By good works. You may not be able to prevent a false accusation from starting, but you can stop it from continuing. If you have an excellent life, 1 Peter 2.15 puts it this way, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. One Christian commentator wrote this. He says, when a Christian walks above reproach, his enemies have nowhere to fasten their teeth on him, but they're forced to gnaw on their own tongues. Another author said, scandalous conduct fuels the fires of criticism, but godly living extinguishes them. Unfortunately, we have a lot of Christians, you know, uh, fueling the fire of criticism because their lives are not above reproach. And, and the, the accusations stick. <laughs> but if you want to silence the, the slander, live a life that's above reproach. The battle that Christians often face from the world by slander, we're, we're actually called to silence them by the lives that we live. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus put it this way, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Peter calls it excellent behavior. Keep your behavior excellent. That word excellent is the Greek word kalos. Uh, speaks about that which is not just good, but that which is lovely, beautiful, attractive, praiseworthy, winsome. Unbelievers should be able to see a consistent, noble behavior in the life of believers. You know, one, one uh, commentator said that, you know, unbelievers read us a lot more than they read the Bible. You know, uh, hopefully they're, they're reading the right thing. What does it look like when unbelievers look at your life? What should it look like? Maybe it should look like uh, what Matthew 25 says. Verse 37, the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you that the extent to which you did this to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Maybe our Christianity should look more like that. Or maybe like what James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father, of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Or maybe it looks like this. First Timothy 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and all dignity. Actually praying for the government. First Peter 4, 15 and 16 says it this way. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Maybe that's what it looks like. You know, as Christians, we don't start rebellions. We don't start riots. We don't damage property. We don't storm the Capitol. We don't shut down businesses. We don't ruin families. It's been said that uh, your life is so loud that I can't hear a word you're saying. You know, is, is our life speaking so loud that people can't hear what we say because our life isn't backing up what we say? We need to make sure that our lifestyle backs up what we speak about. But not only do we shut down slander by good works, 
We also send people to the Savior by good works. Take a look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 12 again. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We also send people to the Savior by our good works, which is really what I believe is the primary reference in this context. Peter speaks about glorifying God in the day of of visitation, uh, which can be understood to be either a day of condemnation or a day of salvation. God can visit you in wrath or God can visit you with a rescue. And we find both in Scripture, right? In uh, Exodus 34 and verse 7, it speaks about the Lord who keeps loving kindnesses for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's a, a visitation and condemnation. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 3, God speaks to Israel and says, Now what will you do in the day of punishment or the day of visitation? And in the devastation which will come from afar, again, this is God visiting in condemnation. Isaiah 23, verse 17, it says, It will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. Then she will go back to her harlot's wages and play the harlot with all the kingdoms of the, on the face of the earth. Again, it's a visitation in condemnation. But the Lord also visits in salvation as well. Psalm 106, verse 4 says, remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation. Jeremiah 27, verse 22. They will be carried to Babylon and they will be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So God can visit in condemnation or salvation. So how do we know what we're talking about in 1 Peter 2, in verse 12, where it says, that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. What, what kind of visitation are we talking about? You know, is this the same thing as uh, Philippians 2, where it lets us know that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? I mean, that's a time when uh, even unbelievers will have to stand before the Lord and give glory to God, right? Everybody's going to give, everybody's going to bow. It's either now or later, all right? Now or later, you're going to bow before Jesus Christ. There's this day that's spoken of in Philippians chapter 2 where everybody has to come and bow. You know, like, like it or not, you, you will bow, right? But how do we know that this isn't just the unbeliever who's forced to bow? It's all based on the context. When Peter says that they are to keep their behavior excellent, it's so the Gentiles, uh, which is uh, how the Bible speaks of unbelieving nations, the unbeliever, may observe them, and again, observing them in the present, Not to remember them in the past, but observing them in the present and glorifying God. So so this is talking about a a present context. In 1 Peter, the individuals are also said to glorify God because of the good deeds of believers. Uh, When we stand before uh, Jesus Christ, when the unbeliever stands before Jesus Christ, I don't think he'll be thinking about the good deeds of the believer. He'll be thinking about who's in front of him on that day. And the same word for visitation that's used in 1 Peter 2 and verse 12 is also used in Luke chapter 19, verse 44. And it's the closest parallel that we have to this verse. And in Luke 19, 44, it says, this is Jesus speaking over Jerusalem, saying that you did not recognize the time of your visitation. 
Actually talking about, I came to you in salvation and you did not recognize who I was. So that's the context that we're, we're talking about here. And again, in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, if you uh, turn back there, believers are given the responsibility of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Believers have the responsibility of proclaiming Jesus Christ. And again, the hope would be for the salvation of the lost. So, so what Peter is saying is that even though unbelievers may slander us as evildoers, our good behavior can change their opinion and turn their slander into salvation. And the, the, the hope here is that the unbeliever would look at the believer who even in the face of persecution and slander continues to exhibit excellent behavior. And that the unbeliever would say, what's going on with this person? Like, like how does this work? How, how is this person who's, who's, who's receiving from me nothing but criticism and slander, how is this person still holding on to their hope? It's actually what we find later on in the book of First Peter in chapter 3, if you want to flip over there, chapter 3, where uh, Peter says this in verse 15. Actually, I'll, I'll go up a little bit. Start at verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What is he saying? He's saying that as the unbeliever is perceiving you suffering unjustly, and you're, you're not fighting back, you're not retaliating, but you seem to have a hope that's like beyond this life that they will scratch their heads and wonder like, what's going on with you? How, how do you have this hope that we don't have? And again, it's this, this uh, an, an allowance for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be spread because of the believers stand for righteousness. God can change a person's heart so that in spite of all the curses that they're bringing upon you, that somehow they're still recognizing the blessing in you at the same time. It's like there's an alien among us. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Again, in uh, Romans chapter 12, you have something similar that's mentioned over here. If you want to flip over there, Romans chapter 12, just to speak of uh, the way that we're to live in the face of persecution and unbelief. Romans chapter 12, look at uh, verse 19. It says, never take your own revenge, beloved. Believe room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heaping uh, burning coals on his head, it's an allusion to Proverbs twenty-five twenty-one, Refers to this ancient practice where uh, somebody who wanted to show a public sign of shame and guilt would actually walk around with a pan with coals, burning coals on the top of this pan, uh, just to demonstrate how, how guilty they felt because of what they've done. And what the scripture is saying here is that if you return good for evil, that this unbeliever, as he's seeing this, consistently demonstrated that he'll eventually start to feel guilty because of his sin. Like, like I do wrong to this guy and he does me nothing but good. What a wretch I am, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the point. We have the example of Jesus Christ himself, whose character was so spotless and his love was so pure 
He prayed for his persecutors, his tormentors. And before he died, the thief on the cross who was himself hurling abuse at Jesus Christ, that he eventually felt condemned because of what he did. And he goes to the other thief and he says, don't, don't you even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We're suffering what we deserve. I accept the guilt. The shame, the guilt belongs to me. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know where you're from, but I know you're not from this world. <laughs> I know you're not from this world. Then there was the centurion who watched the whole thing. The centurion who might have joined in on the mockery of Jesus Christ just moments before. But now the centurion's at the bottom of the cross. He's watching all this, perceiving what's going on, how Jesus died, the miracles that took place. And he himself throws the guilt on his head. And he says, surely this was the son of God. Surely this was the son of God. This man is not from this world. We have the example of the Philippian jailer over in Acts chapter 16. Witness Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And after an earthquake shook the prison doors open, the jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? But actually, that's not the order that it happened in. Listen to how it happened. The gates shook from the earthquake. The jailer pulls out a sword about to take his own life, fearing that all the prisoners had escaped. And then what does he receive from Paul? He receives the kindness of Paul, who says, do no harm to yourself. We're all here. He cries out with a loud voice, Paul does in Acts chapter 16, says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. He called for the lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas after he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you know what this jailer received? He received the kindness from a person that he had just persecuted. A person who was in chains behind a a locked bar, right? But now this man, instead of saying, hey, he's going to take his life, good for you. You should take it. You shouldn't have had me in here in the first place. Peter rushes to, to uh, Paul rushes to his defense and says, hey, don't, don't arm yourself. We're, we're here. We're here. And now all of a sudden this, this jailer is convicted. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like, this is not the natural way that prisoners treat their captors. This is not the, the, the way that prisoners treat those who've imprisoned them. Something's different about you. You're not from this place. <laughs> Something's different about who you are. What kind of alien is this? You have no idea how your life and your witness can have an impact on those around you. If, if, if you might be on a job and, and people, they give you a hard time because of your belief in Jesus Christ. And everything on the inside says, I need to come back. <laughs> I, 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 need to, I need to make sure that they know that I learned some stuff in middle school too. I know how to make a comeback. I know how to make a comeback. I learned all I need to know in middle school. I know how to come back with something fearsome. I'm going to come back with a a quick one. You might feel it on the inside, but what does Peter say? Abstain from that. Don't don't go there. Do do the right thing. And by responding in the right way, you don't know what kind of impact you could have on that person. You don't don't know what could be going on in that person's mind. You know, maybe maybe you're with a a couple of buddies and they're, they're trying to influence you to to look at things that you know you shouldn't be looking at. You know, to laugh at jokes that you know you shouldn't be laughing at. You know, don't, don't, don't allow your heart to go there. 
you stand firm, stand strong, resist that temptation, you don't know what kind of impact you can make on that person as they see your good works and one day will glorify the Father in heaven saying, something is different about that guy. Something's different about that lady. they're, They're not like us. They're from someplace else. There was a story that was printed about two missionaries, Herb and Ruth Klingen, their young son who spent three years in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines during World War II. In his diary, Herb recorded that their captors murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of their fellow prisoners. The camp commandant, Konishi, was feared and hated more than the others. Herb writes, Konishi found an inventive way to abuse us even more. He increased the food rations, but gave us unhusked rice. Eating the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell would cause internal bleeding that would kill us in hours. We had no tools to remove the husks, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with the heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would supply. It was a death sentence for all the internees. Before death could claim their lives, however, General Douglas MacArthur and his forces liberated them from captivity. That very day, Konishi had planned to gun down all the remaining prisoners. Years later, Herb and Ruth, these missionaries, learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged. But before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries who persecuted. He turned to the Lord, having witnessed their excellent behavior. I'd say he would probably say he saw an alien, that something about them is not like everybody else. There's something different about these people. And I pray that there would be the same kind of difference in our lives as well. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the the gift that it is to all of us, uh, that your word gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, and that we can Come to your word, Lord, and be convicted, be challenged because of what we read. Father, I pray that if there are any of us, Lord, who are tempted by the fleshly lust and appetites, tempted to to, to be comfortable and make our home with this world, Father, I pray that you would remind us of who we really are. There were aliens, that were foreigners, that we don't belong to this current world, that you've saved us out of this world, that we would be a different people. Father, I pray that you would remind us of that, and and Father, that you would help us to live lives that are excellent, praiseworthy, that unbelievers would be able to look at us and see something different about the way that we live our lives, and that some, Lord, that their eyes would be open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and glorify the Father who's in heaven. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. 
Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.